right, good to see you today. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, I wanna invite you at this time to go ahead and take it out, head over to the book of Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one. Now, as you're headed over to Genesis three, starting in verse one, um, I just wanna make a quick announcement. Uh, today, uh, many churches across the, the nation are commemorating a Sunday that is known as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And today we have one of our partner organizations with us. That organization is called CareNet. CareNet is a crisis pregnancy center who has locations across the city of Houston helping pregnant mothers who are in crisis. If you would like to hear more about their mission, get to know what they're doing more, they have some bookmarks that are available uh, for prayer. Uh, if you'd like to be part of their prayer support, then you can stop by a table they have set up out here in the commons today. So please stop by there and say hey to the folks from CareNet and let them know that we appreciate their ministry today. Now, <clears throat> one more thing as you're headed over to Genesis chapter three, I like to just give a brief introduction to the Bible each week for folks who are in the room who might be brand new to the Bible. So let me just give a brief intro to the Bible. The Bible's divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament gives a record of God's chosen people, Israel, and tells us about their need for a rescuer, a redeemer. They use the word Messiah. In the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, we find out who that Redeemer is, that Messiah. We find out that it's Jesus and that Jesus is not just a teacher or a prophet, but that Jesus is actually God's son, God in flesh, born of a virgin, lives a sinless human life, teaches the way we're supposed to live, calls it the kingdom of God, dies a sacrificial death on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and then three days later is raised from the dead. His believers were so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, they went to the ends of the earth and they told people, we have found the Messiah, and you can have the promise of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and the power to live here and now today if you place your faith in him. That message is the gospel message. We're preaching it today. It's the same message from 2,000 years ago, and hope that you will continue to follow that message, to hear that message, to respond to that message even now here today. So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, is where we're going to be. Genesis is the beginning of the human story. And there in Genesis 3 today, we're gonna hear how a lot of things in the world went wrong and how God intends to set those things right. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray over us and uh, then we're gonna read from Genesis 3 together. So let's ask God to bless our time as we open up his word today. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. <clears throat> God, today our prayer is that you would speak through my flawed personality, my uh, shortcomings, God, and somehow you would overcome whatever obstacles there might be to my innate nature, Lord, and just put your own beauty on display, your power, God. I just pray that you show it to everyone here. God, my prayer is that people would see you. They would hear from you, and they would respond to you. So God, now we lift you high. Let us hear from you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of plentiful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. This is the word of the Lord. One of the weird experiences I've had being a pastor over the years is that I've actually had my identity stolen as a pastor. Um, maybe this is something that you've experienced, but for some reason, someone got on the church website, got my name and email, and created another email address that was similar to mine, and started emailing church members that they found their contact info on the website and telling them that I needed help, and people would respond and say, well, what do you need? And then they would say, I need you to go buy hundreds of dollars of gift cards and bring them to me immediately right? Except the way they would have them delivered would be just send me the numbers on the back and then I'll give those to the people who are in need. People finally started getting suspicious, calling me, are you trying to get me to buy hundreds of dollars of iTunes gift cards? No, I'm not. Sorry about that, right? Um, kind of a weird thing. Uh, this is kind of a, a bizarre thing that happens a lot in our world today, right? Where people will get your bank information or your social media account or whatever and they'll impersonate you. They'll try to steal your identity. Uh, thieves, have been creative over the years trying to come up with new ways to steal things that don't belong to them and our identities are just the most recent thing in the digital age that thieves attempt to steal. But actually a stolen identity is not something that is new in the 21st century. The stolen identity originated in Genesis chapter three. And today I want us to look at the original thief, the enemy, Satan, the serpent here in Genesis chapter three, who has been working to steal our identity as long as we've been alive. Now in John chapter 10, verse 10, if you were to go there, you would read that a thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what you would see. And Jesus is speaking in that particular passage and he is referring to the thief, not just any generic thief, but he's referring to this particular thief, the enemy. Today what I want us to do is I want us to look in Genesis chapter three and I want us to see the obstacles that we face every day. You see, this series is called Be Someone and the whole idea behind Be Someone is that we would be who it is that God has created us to be. The thing preventing us from being the person God wants us to be is the enemy. 
who wants to steal our identity. Now, when someone else, a human, steals your identity, they pretend to be you. But whenever the enemy steals your identity, his trick is different. He tries to get you to be someone else. So today I want us to see what the enemy is about, how he's trying to get us to be someone we are not, and I want us to see what's happening. So let's go to Genesis 3, and let's just see the way that the enemy, from the beginning, right, this, he does not have any new tricks. He's doing the same thing today that he was doing back in the garden. Let's go and let's see the things that the enemy tries to do to steal our identity and to get us to walk away from who it is that God has created us to be. So what does the enemy do? First thing, verse one. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That's what the enemy says. The first thing that the enemy works to do is he works to sow mistrust between humans and God. The enemy wants you to confuse you on God's intentions for you. The enemy wants you to not trust that God has your best intentions at heart. This is why he says, did God really say this? Now, if you've gone back and read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you know this. It's nothing close to what God said. God did not say, you can't eat any tree in the garden, eat the fruit of any tree in the garden. God said, you can eat the fruit of the tree of any tree in the garden, just not this one specific particular tree. So the way that it begins is that the enemy says something so ridiculous, so ludicrous, that the woman, Eve, is drawn in and starts to have dialogue with the enemy. This is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to draw you in so you'll listen to him. Now look at Eve's response. This is intriguing to me. Eve says that we are, this is in uh, verse three, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, What's interesting to me about this particular verse is that this is actually a modification of what God said. God did say, do not eat of that tree, but the Lord God never said, do not touch that tree. Now, we don't know exactly why it is that Eve said, we can't eat it or touch it, but we know that Eve was not present whenever the Lord God said, don't eat of the tree. He gave that command to Adam. So probably Adam then said that to Eve, and it seems then that Adam added to God's word. I don't know about you, but I have over the years sat under teaching and preaching where I have heard people add to the word of God. And if you've ever gone back and then read the scripture and found out that the things that you were told weren't exactly biblical, you've probably had a moment where you've said, well, can I even trust the church? Or can I even trust the pastor? Or can I even trust God? And so it's always important for us to note here that whenever we add to God's word, it ends up actually digging into the mistrust that we might end up with. So the enemy told a complete mistruth and then follows that up with a half-truth. The enemy then says to the woman, he says, you will certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he lies in the beginning. He says, you won't die. Now that's not true. They are gonna die. Not immediately, but they will now die. But then he says, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll know good and evil. That's true. But then he says, you'll be like God. Not true. So he takes some things that are not true, some things that are true, and mixes all of those together. Here's the thing. The enemy is always taking half-truths and combining those with complete lies 
so that we will then begin to question if God actually knows what is best. This is the way that God likes to work. So, for instance, you know that Adam and Eve, whenever they finally took a bite of the fruit, they probably actually began to question God immediately. Why? They take the bite and they don't drop dead. Hmm, well, God said that we would die. Now, God kept his word. They did die, just not immediately. But as a result, they probably began to think, well, since we're not dead, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. Now, I mention this because I think that in our lives, many of us, Hear the voice of the enemy. And he whispers to us in different ways. So what do we do? We think, well, maybe I could try this. And initially, whatever the enemy is whispering to us feels pretty good. Or we get a pretty good response out of it. And as a result, we think, well, I can just kind of keep going along in this way. And the ramifications, the consequences don't show up for a long, long time. Uh, Louise Perry, who's a British journalist, wrote a book called um, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now, Louise Perry, not a Christian, Um, But she wrote this book talking about how the sexual revolution of the 1960s did not deliver the promises that it gave to young women in the 1960s. But she says, we really didn't begin to see the full fruit of that, the full ramifications of that until the present day in the 21st century. And she makes the case, again, non-believer, she makes the case that the people paying the price for the sexual revolution of the 1960s are young women in the 21st century. She actually says the people that are supposed to help women end up being the people who it hurts the most. So the interesting thing, I think, often whenever we have mistrust with God is that God tells us something, we don't believe it. Initially, it seems pretty good, but we don't see the consequences till much, much later. So mistrust, second, shame. Look at verse seven. In verse seven, it says, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is fascinating to me. The enemy tells them, you're gonna know the difference between good and evil. By the way, that turns out to be true. Verse 22 shows us that. But before they even notice good and evil, the first thing they notice is, I'm naked. The first thing that happens when they listen to the enemy is that they feel ashamed. Feel ashamed. Whenever we trust the lies of the enemy, the thing that always ends up happening is that we invite shame into our lives. I think that one of the untold, often whispered consequences of sinfulness sinfulness is not just death, but it's actually shamefulness. When we get stuck in a pattern of sin, there's always shame. We don't want to talk about it. Now, this is the way that, that the enemy brings out a division between us. Now, if you notice, whenever the man and the woman are ashamed, what do they do? They hide from God, right? They hide from God because they're ashamed. They did something they knew they shouldn't have done. Each of us in this room, we have things that we have done or maybe even are currently doing of which we are ashamed. Typically, whenever we meet people, we don't lead with the portion of our personality or of our behavior that we're ashamed of, right? We try to keep that on the back burner. So what's interesting is, is that we can have a very polite surface level relationship with someone, but we actually cannot go deep with someone until what? We trust them. But the only way we know that if we trust them is if we do what? We tell them the thing that we're most ashamed of. God knows our shame. He knows the thing that we're trying to hide. 
People, though, they don't. The way that the enemy gets us to break the great commandment, you remember the great commandment? The great commandment is love the Lord God and love people. The way that the enemy does that is to make you ashamed. Because if you're ashamed, you feel separation from God. And if you're ashamed, you won't go deep with people. And as a result, then you have separation with others. It's just an interesting dynamic. If the enemy can just get us to be ashamed, to not fully confess who it is that we are, then we end up experiencing an isolated effect where we don't really feel like we have community. There's no one who really knows me. No one really hears my story. And we even think in our prayers with God, I don't know if you've ever been in this place, but I've had a place in prayer where I'm trying to present a more sanitized version of myself to God. Anybody ever been there? You're like, Oh, Father, please thou hear me in thine grace, right? And you're not being real with the Lord. Now, they had had intimacy with God. You notice the verse, they're hiding and they hear his footsteps. Like they had walked with God so much, they knew what his footsteps sounded like. But now they're trying to hide. Intimacy is broken. Intimacy is broken by shame. Whenever I was a kid, um, me and my brothers were wrestling one day, and uh, long story short, one of us ended up putting a kitchen chair through the window. Um, yeah, but we had a great plan, don't worry. We put the chair back under the table where it belonged, and we just closed the blinds. <laughs> and um, yeah, so after, you know, real geniuses uh, at that time. So then we got a piece of cardboard, and we just cut it to fit the window, put it there, and we thought, no draft coming in, foolproof plan. Now, to kind of give you a sense of how intelligent we were in those days, this is the window that faced the driveway. <laughs> so as my parents came home, they were like, hmm, interesting. Uh, but I think just to have fun with us, they didn't say anything about it. Uh, we're sitting around the dinner table eating, and uh, my dad goes, you know, Steve, it's kind of hot in here. Why don't you open up a window? <laughs> but this is the way that shame works, right? It's obvious there's something wrong with us, but we try to hide it, and we think that God doesn't know. The only way you get intimacy is when you disclose all your junk. Now, I'm not advocating that every person you should meet, you should start off by saying, hey, let me tell you all my deep problems, right? But you should have some people where you can be completely transparent, because shame is the barrier between being known. Next, blame. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. God says, Adam, how'd this happen? He says, she did it. Right, a real man's man there, right, Adam? You know, blaming. And we do this, right? Now listen, you've been through some bad things. I know you have. I've been through some bad things. Here's the thing about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is when you say, these things have happened to me, yet they will not define me, nor will I blame my current circumstances on someone else. Now listen, you, you gotta heal, I understand that, you gotta work through that, but you don't sit around and say, he's the reason that I'm miserable. She's the reason that I'm miserable. This thing happened to me, and now I can't move any further. If we are blaming others, then we are not accepting responsibility for our own spiritual growth, and the only way we can grow is when we say, God, take this mess and make it yours. Now, a lot of us, and this is true, as a pastor, I'll often say this, people have a reason for doing the things they do. You probably have a reason when you act out 
in ways that you shouldn't. But just because you have a reason doesn't make you right. Let's just say that again. Just because you have a reason doesn't make you right. And a lot of us are justifying anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, frustration, anger, hostility, because something happened to us. And listen to me, I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm not saying you don't have real problems and brokenness and hurt and woundedness. I'm just saying that doesn't get to control you if you're in Christ. Many of us have a fatalist view of theology. We say, I can't help doing that thing because this other thing happened to me. That's like if you give a mouse a cookie theology. Anybody here ever read that book before? Right, okay. If, you don't, if you're unfamiliar with the children's classic, if you give a mouse a cookie, if you give a mouse a cookie, then you gotta do what? You gotta give him a glass of milk. If you give him a glass of milk, you gotta give him a straw. And if you give him a straw, you gotta give him a napkin so he'll have a milk mustache. And if you do that, then he's gonna wanna trim his whiskers. Then he's gonna want a broom. Then he's gonna wanna take a nap. Then he's gonna need a story read to him. Then he's gonna wanna paint a picture. Then he's gonna put it on the refrigerator. He's gonna look at the refrigerator. He's gonna want a glass of milk because he's thinking how thirsty he is. And then he's gonna want a cookie again and you're back over at the beginning. Now, some of you are impressed that I know that book. Don't be. I read it a lot, okay? Here's the point. Some of us are stuck in this cycle, this if you give a mouse a cookie cycle, and the reason that we are is we have convinced ourselves, I can't stop being bitter. I can't stop being angry. I can't stop being hateful. I can't stop exploding on others. I can't stop doing whatever that thing is because we think this thing happened to me, it affected me, and I just can't jump out of it. Listen to me. You are then saying your wound is bigger than Jesus. The way that we step out of the cycle of sin is that we short circuit through obedience. You short circuit sin through obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's get off the slippery slope of fatalistic thinking and let's step into obedience to Christ. Final thing, verse 16. The curse is given. Now, the curse here. The first three things are our fault, right? The enemy whispers in and then we respond, these things happen. But then people are like, well, why would God curse us? I don't think that we really know, the scripture doesn't say, but I believe that we are cursed. This is the gospel according to Steve. I believe that we are cursed because God then wants to create a situation in the world, like in planet earth, in our lives, every day where we run into these things and we are reminded that the world is broken and we need rescue. So in other words, the curse has been given so that we will feel the draw to return and to go back to God. The problem is, is that for many of us, we experience the pain of the curse and we try to actually turn to other people or money or achievement or whatever that thing might be. So here's the, the problems with the curse, or the results rather of the curse. The curse breaks relationships. Now specifically the marital relationship is mentioned here, but it's really just relationships Next, childbearing is made painful. Personally, I can't testify to that. Um, I thought that was funny. Sorry about that. But I will tell you, I have witnessed two childbirths, and it does appear to be an accurate statement. All right, next. Um, work. Work is before the fall. Work is before the curse. Work is supposed to be pleasurable. Now it's cursed. Death. Death enters in. See, remember, God didn't lie. See, you're from dust. Now you're going to return to dust. So all of these things 
should make us say, how do I get past death? How do I get past this cursed relationship where the marriage relationship is broken or those sorts of things? Well, the answer is, is we, we see deliverance in Christ. But the problem is, is that many of us run to be fulfilled in other places. Hear me today. The curse is not your design and the curse is not your destiny. But the curse is still present. This is what the enemy does to steal your identity. This is what he does. He sows mistrust. He makes you feel ashamed. He pushes you to blame. And then you have to walk in a cursed reality. And when you do that, over and over, you begin to feel as if you are not yourself. And when you live as someone who's not yourself, then you live disconnected from God. When we live from the curse, we're living from a stolen identity. And when we live from a stolen identity, we live from a faulty worldview. Jamie Winship says that there are only two worldviews in the world, and I'm gonna show those to you today. The first worldview is the worldview of Genesis 3. It's the worldview the enemy wants you to have. Here it is. It's the worldview of separation. I think we've got a slide up here. When we have separation, we start with a false identity. We think that we are something we are not. And the enemy tricks us to live from that false identity, to act as if we are someone God did not design us to be. Now, we might think that's not that big of a problem, but it actually is, because whenever we live from a false identity, then what happens? Most of the time, it generates fear in us. What are we afraid of? I'm gonna miss out on what I really should have had. And we're afraid that I'm never gonna actually be happy or have pleasure. Or we're afraid that we're not gonna you know, ever be in charge of someone. We're afraid no one's ever gonna respect us or whatever that thing is. So we become fearful. The more fearful we are, what happens? Then we have internal conflict. We start to feel like we're never gonna have these things and so it makes us feel discombobulated on the inside. Everything's stirred up inside. And so we're frustrated. Now, you know this as well as I do. When you're stirred up on the inside, you're having internal conflict. What does that lead to? External conflict. Because whenever you're bitter and angry and frustrated on the inside, what do you do? You look for the closest person to take that out on. It leads to external conflict. The other problem with it is, is whenever you're frustrated on the inside, you're having external conflict, what do you do? You, you navel gaze. You focus on yourself, right? You're, you're frustrated with yourself and you're always thinking about yourself. And here's the truth in self-focus. David Brooks in his book, How to Know a Person, has pointed out the happiest people in the world are the people who are focused on others. The most miserable people are the people who are focused on themselves. So I want us to notice that. Next, perfection. What ends up happening is that then whenever we have failure, then what do we do? We end up judging ourselves, experiencing shame, and we experience that shame because we messed up. We're like, well, I should have been perfect and I didn't have that, right? So what happens? That false identity, I don't have the thing that I thought I should have, I'm afraid, I've got this conflict, and now I'm judging myself and I end up becoming more ashamed and more frustrated with who I thought I ought to be. Certainty comes in, and by certainty what we mean is, is we think, I should have known the way that this was supposed to go. I knew the way that the world was supposed to be, I didn't get it, and then that ends up to a scarcity mindset. What does that mean? It means there's not enough out there for me. I have an orphan mindset. So I started thinking, I'm never gonna have the thing that I should have had. This is a separation mindset. Sin, the enemy, puts us in a separation mindset. The separation mindset is the mindset 
of the world. It's the mindset of empire. It's the water we swim in every single day. Whenever you or I begin to believe the wrong things about ourselves, we slip into a stolen identity. And whenever we slip into a stolen identity, then we begin to live in a way that is out of step with God's reality. Many of us are living in the same world, but living completely different realities because some of us are living separated from God and others of us are living connected to God. The only way out of this is to rediscover our true identity. We have to find our true identity. How do we get our true identity? We have to hear the truth. Who's the truth teller? Jesus. You see, Jesus wants us to hear the truth and then to be reconnected to God. Now, I ran past a verse in this passage, Genesis chapter three, verse 15. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, it's sometimes known as the proto-evangelium. If your Latin's a little rusty, what that means is the first gospel. It's the first place in the scripture where the gospel is ever preached. Let's look at Genesis chapter three, verse 15. That verse says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Let's go to that, that last part of that verse. He, that's Jesus, will strike your head. That's the serpent's head. That's the enemy's head. And you, the enemy, will strike his heel. This is a prophecy of Jesus' coming, that Jesus will strike the head of the serpent and will kill him. And that he, the enemy, will strike the heel of Christ. In other words, will cause pain, but eventually will do no damage. You may have seen this image of Eve in the garden and of Mary pregnant with Jesus that makes the rounds regularly around Christmas. And if you look closely at this image, what you'll notice there is that underneath the foot of Mary, you will see this, the head of the serpent being crushed. This painting is depicting this very prophecy with Mary consoling Eve and Eve finding hope in the child that is present inside the body of Mary, knowing that the only way that the enemy and sin will be crushed is through the advent, the advent of Jesus. You see, this verse is important to us because we're in the middle of a cursed reality, a reality where every day we have to make a decision to not live as if we are in the middle of a curse. I wanna go back to the verse that we started this sermon with. John chapter 10, verse 10. A thief comes only to do what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. That's the first half of that verse. The second half, Jesus then says, right? Jesus then says, I have come though, so that you might have life and have it in abundance. Jesus wants you to have life. Now, how do we get life? We get life not by being separated from God, but being connected to God. That's what, that's what John 15 is about. John 15 is you will abide in him. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But whenever you're with the vine, then you have life. That's how you have fruit, is when you're connected to the vine. If you're separated, you'll experience death, you'll experience failure. But when you're connected to Jesus, then you have life and you have it to the full. Jesus wants to tell you the truth. He wants to say, look, what the enemy has said about you is not true. 
This is the truth about you. So Jesus looks at you today and says, I have done everything necessary for you to be in relationship with God. Your sin and your shame have been crucified. You don't need to be ashamed anymore. You do need to tell the truth about where you're at. You do need to confess, but if you'll do those things, I can bring you right back. You're beloved, you're accepted, you're received, you're forgiven, you're washed, you're a child, you're adopted, you're lavished, you're graced. All those things are the truth and when we believe them, we're reconnected and we have life. But when we don't believe, we're separated and we experience frustration and death. Today, today what I want you to hear is that God wants you to have life. So what happens if we're reconnected? Let's go to the other possible worldview. Here's the other worldview. Connection. Whenever we're living connected to God, we have our true identity. And when we have our true identity, then instead of fear being my primary emotion, my base level emotion, I have joy. You know what joyfulness is? Joyfulness is thankfulness living out hope. Right, because joyfulness is, look what God has done for me. Look how blessed I am. Look at the things I experience. Look at the freedom that I have in Christ. And when I live from joy, what happens? I have inner peace. Not internal conflict, but inner peace. Now, when I have inner peace and I come up against a problem, do you know what my first response is? I bet there's a way we can solve this. I bet we can solve this. Not, I'm gonna take the other guy out. Remember what David Brooks says, the people who are most happy are the people who are focused on others rather than themselves. And whenever you are operating from your true identity, you're not trying to get people to notice you or be like, hey, check out how awesome I am. You're not trying to solve your own problems. Instead, you're saying, how can I help others? Now, we can burn ourselves out, I get all that, but whenever we're others focused, we experience more joy. Then, instead of judging ourselves because we're always operating from a place that we feel like we have to be perfect, we begin to realize, yeah, I made a mistake there, but every time I fail, I learn, and I end up growing. Instead of having to live from a place of complete certainty, we can accept that there's mystery. Sometimes people will call me, say, Pastor Steve, what's the answer to this question in the Bible? And you know what? I now am old enough that I have the freedom to say this, this answer. No idea. You say, I don't know. It doesn't mean that I don't believe in God. It doesn't, believe, it doesn't mean that I think that Jesus isn't real. It just means I don't know the answer to that. There is mystery in this universe and I'm okay with that. And I think that you can be as well. Because whenever you live like this, you can know there's enough. I don't have to act like there's scarcity, but instead I can say there is enough. Now, I want us to put both of those, both of those worldviews side by side. Let's just take a look at them for just a second. So here they are, the two worldviews. On the left, separation, false identity, fear, internal conflict, external conflict, self-focus, perfection, certainty, and scarcity. And on the right, connection, which is true identity, joy, inner peace, creative solutions, others focused, failure is learning, mystery, and enough. Which one would you rather have? I mean, it's not even close, right? And yet, and yet, most of us live day by day in the separation worldview rather than connection. You can only have connection, listen to me, you can only have connection in Jesus. Now, if you are not a believer, you can never experience true joy, true connection until you place your faith in Christ. But many of us in this room, many of us in this room, we've been believers, we just end up trending back towards the separation mindset, the separation worldview, because 
life is hard and we're swimming in the waters of separation day by day with every person we come into contact with. But connection can come because the head of the serpent has been crushed by the heel of God. The heel of God is made up of a stained cross and an empty tomb. And it was strong enough then and still is strong enough today to crush the head of the serpent. And here's the thing I want you to hear. The serpent ain't dead yet. He's still whispering. He's still lying. He's still trying to convince people that they can be happy in a separation mindset. Now, it's not true, mind you, but many of us believe it. So today we have to decide, will I place my faith day by day in Jesus? Every day when you get up, you've got to decide, will you abide in Christ or will you be separated? See, lots of us have like different mindsets. Some of us today, we're, we're really good at faking it, right? Like maybe we grew up in church and we kind of learned the lingo, but the, the fruit that's on our tree is not real. It's fake fruit. It's fake. And because it's fake fruit, what ends up happening is that it has no power. Why, why doesn't fake fruit have any power? Because fake fruit has no seed. Like when fake fruit is thrown in the trash, there's no seed there to multiply. It's just fake fruit that's now garbage. A church that is filled with people who have fake fruit, that church has no power. But if a church has people who are actually faithful and have real fruit, then what happens? Jesus says whenever the seed dies and falls into the ground, it ends up bringing forth a crop that's even greater and larger. So here today, if you would say, I know the lingo, but I'm just faking it, my challenge today would be this, move from knowing the lingo to knowing the Lord. Okay? Get connected. Others of us were the prodigal. What do I mean by the prodigal? There was a time when we were close to the Father, and for whatever reason, we've run away. I don't know why. Maybe something happened to you. Maybe you got church hurt in your past. Uh, maybe you got mixed up in some kind of stuff you shouldn't have been mixed up in, and you thought they're not going to want me back at church. I, I don't know. Doesn't matter. Here's the thing if you've been running away from God, you know that eventually, the further you run away, the more separated you get, the more miserable you are. And you need to get connected again. Just come back. Others of us, we're the cynical, jaded people, right? Like, this is the hard one. The people who are jaded are normally very intelligent people. And they have seen enough of brokenness inside the church to where, for whatever reason, they grow bitter towards their circumstances or towards life. And as a result, the voice of the enemy, oddly enough, starts to sound more enticing the longer that they're alive. And so they, they reach this point in their life where they're like, well, I could probably do better. You know, I could probably find happiness outside of Jesus, away from the kingdom. But then others of us here today, we've just actually never experienced connection because we've never finally said, I believe in Jesus. And what, what am I saying when I say that? Saying you're, that you were gonna say, number one, Jesus is not just a prophet or a teacher, but Jesus is God in flesh. He taught the way to live. Like when I say we're gonna obey Jesus, we're gonna go, we're gonna read the gospels and we're gonna say what he said, I'm gonna do that. And we're gonna believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sin so that I can be connected to God. And that three days later, he conquered death. And he conquered death so that I might have the promise of eternal life in the same way that Jesus got out of the grave one day, I'm gonna get out of the grave one day. And that Jesus fills me with his spirit so that I can have the power to live. Now, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus today, I want you to hear me on this. We will help you. We will, we will teach you. We will help you 
know what it means to follow Jesus, but you've got to make the decision first. No one can do it for you. Others of us in the room, you know, we're faking or we're the prodigal or we're jaded or whatever. We've got to come to that decision ourselves, but most of us in the room that have already been believers, we know what we've got to do. But those of us who have never believed, we need today to surrender to him and say, I'm ready to be reconnected with God. So the good news of the gospel is that today you can live your entire life in connection with the Lord. But you have to choose. Do you want to be connected? Or do you think that you can actually have the life that you think you want separated? The answer, I think, has proven itself to be true over and over and over. Let's say yes to the Lord today. Would you bow your head with me? So, if you're here today, and you would say, Steve, I'm one of those first few categories. I've been faking, or I'm jaded, I'm a prodigal, whatever. I wanna pray for you. And if you're willing, if you feel courageous enough to do it, would you just let me pray for you just by raising your hand? So just nobody looking around, just raise your hand up. All right, lots of hands going up. Would you just raise your hand for me right now? Say, yeah, that's, that's me. Okay, lots of hands going up. Anybody else? Okay, put them down. Okay, anybody here today, you would say, hey, Steve, I... I have not experienced connection with God because I've never actually believed in Jesus, but today I'm ready to have this new life. I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus today. If that's you, would you raise your hand and say, yep, today's a day. I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus, okay? I see you. Who else? Raise it up for me. Raise it up, say, that's me. I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus, okay? I see you back there in the back, okay? Who else? Okay, another one back there in the back. Who else? Okay, I've seen three, maybe more. If you just raise your hand just now, just pray with me where you're at. Lord, I don't wanna be separated. I wanna be connected. God, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that you've given everything I need. I believe that he is your son. I believe that he died for my sin. I believe that he's resurrected from the dead. I'm ready to follow him. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any questions about what you just heard, we'd love to talk with you. You can get connected at hnw.org about what we believe or how to join a small group or follow us on social media as well. Thank you so much for joining us and we'd love to see you soon.